Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan has a new offer I'm excited to share with you today. This is for those of you who are US residents or taxpayers who want to hold Bitcoin in a tax-advantaged way. Swan has an IRA. So Bitcoin is generational wealth, and you can now secure your bright orange future with the Swan IRA. Real Bitcoin, no taxes. Swan offers both traditional and Roth options to best fit your needs. Create your IRA and start adding Bitcoin in less than one minute. Transfers and rollovers are available and Swan's Bitcoin experts will get you set up with no transfer fees and no minimum balance requirements. This is real Bitcoin, not an ETF or other derivative. Get the real thing at Swan. Go to swan.com IRA to see more details. For those of you interested in a community for Bitcoin builders, Build on L2 is a new community by Blockstream. This is an initiative with many community members, with contributors and companies who are building on Core Lightning and the Liquid Network. It's an interactive community platform where you can chat with other people and you can come together through various events which are being hosted like webinars and there are also a mentorship programs available to fast track your success or you can simply explore the community space to learn something alongside other bitcoiners so this could be relevant for you whether you're a product manager designer engineer go and sign up over at buildonl2.com now when it comes to checking bitcoin transactions i use mempool.space it is a fantastic multi-layer explorer of Bitcoin. You can see Bitcoin's mempool, the blockchain, second layer networks like Liquid and the Lightning Network. And with mempool.space, you don't have to trust a third party. It's free and open source software. I use mempool.space regularly to check my transaction fees before I send larger on-chain transactions. Now, if you are with an enterprise, mempool.space has custom mempool instances with your company's branding. You can have increased access or availability in terms of feature requests. Go and learn more at mempool.space slash enterprise. My guest today is Greg Sanders from Blockstream. He's also known as Instagibs. He is a Bitcoin and Lightning developer. And we're talking about a range of things ranging from transaction pinning and the mempool full RBF discussion, as well as transaction pinning vectors and possible fixes. And then we also get into some discussion about AnyPrevout and L2. So for those of you who don't know, AnyPrevout is a proposed soft fork, which could help improve Lightning Network and take us to L2, which would be a, a much more improved version of the Lightning Network. And we talk about what are some of the possibilities there, con contrasting Lightning Network penalty, which is what we have today, with what we could potentially see such as lightning network symmetry so on to the discussion with greg greg also known as instagibs welcome to the show hi glad to be here so greg i know you're doing a lot of work on uh, some interesting lightning stuff and transaction fee pinning things i know you've been around for a while in terms of bitcoin development and lightning stuff so yeah interested to chat and hear a little bit more from your perspective and uh yeah, want to learn a little bit about what you're up to. So do you want to just give us a bit of a, a high level? What, what are you up to these days? What's your main focus area? Yeah, so starting last April 2022, I rejoined Blockstream, uh, this time under Rusty, the Core Lightning Team leader. And uh, I've been working on, specifically was hired to work on L2, E-L-T-O-O, the kind of symmetric channel construction using any prev out or no input. Uh, soft forks. I was. I'm ultimately aimed at getting it deployed on on the Liquid Network, but as a key part of it, I'm building it for Bitcoin first, and then you know adapting whatever needs to be adapted for it. Since the since the systems are so similar, yeah. So that's kind of like yeah. the, the high level direction there. 
Awesome, yeah, and I'm a, I'm a fan of the any prevout idea, and I'd I'd personally love to see L2. So, listeners, check out my earlier episode with Christian Decker, where we've spoken a bit about some of this, and I'm sure Greg, you've probably pushed it forward as well yourself. And I know AJ Towns has also done some work on this stuff as well. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and one other thing, I was also curious to chat about. I know you have some knowledge or expertise in this area around transaction fee pinning as well, because it's sort of related in a way. So I think it'd be great if maybe you could just give us a bit of an overview of this idea, transaction fee pinning, like what, what is it? Right. So this is related to the L2 work, actually, because as I started working on it, I, I, made, I wrote uh, the bolts, the standards for the L2 channels. And as I was writing these, I became more and more convinced that this issue called transaction pinning was going to be a real problem. Uh, transaction pinning is where a kind of a griefer or a counterparty that is can accidentally do this as well, but they make a transaction that is unlikely to get confirmed anytime soon. And actually is, so in effect, it's kind of not paying miners fees, right? And then you'd say, okay, well, why don't we RBF or, you know, double spend it with a higher fee? But due to a mixture of kind of design constraints of the current system, it makes it difficult or very expensive to do so. We can dive deeper into details on that, but that's high level kind of Miners aren't getting paid when they should be. I think it'd be good to chat a little bit about that. And, you know, if we could maybe put that into a context, like let's say you and I had a lightning channel together. And let's say, so I guess for listeners who are like more newer to this, like the idea is we have pre-signed transactions that are not broadcast yet. And so I guess the idea is if one of us goes offline, uh, if the other has to now force close the channel, we would need to broadcast that transaction, right? But I guess part of it is like, we're getting into this idea of if let's say i'm malicious and i see you've gone offline i try to you know broadcast a an old state that has you know less coins for you and more coins for me and so i guess could you just talk us through what that would look like if let's say let's say i'm malicious i'm trying to stop you from putting in your justice transaction or your penalty transaction yeah so i think for pinning the specific case that most people talk about are is uh, delaying out the HTLC resolution, so a hash time lock contract, which means you're, this contract is supposed to be resolved within n blocks. You could say like a day's worth of blocks. But what happens is the timer starts, so the commitment transaction, this lightning transaction hits the chain, this timer starts, and then what the counterparty can do is make a transaction that's kind of very large and low fee rates. So if there's a fee rate spike, if there's a big backlog like we've seen recently, and the going rate's high, much higher than one Satoshi per virtual byte, maybe the counterparty can get that one Satoshi per virtual byte transaction in the mempool, but not actually try to get it confirmed. And then this times out the contract. And then what they can do is they can, they can take the timeout clause of this contract and grab the money back. So for example, you already forwarded this HTLC to another Lightning peer. They've claimed it. But then the person that offered you the contract on the inbound direction, they claw it back. So essentially, you've been stolen from. And so pinning is one method of kind of stealing from you in smart contracts, or at least making your life difficult. There are other considerate. So a less smart contracty thing is where, let's say you're uh, a, a Bitcoin payment processor, uh, or you're a custodian, right? And you will do batched payouts. So you're, you're paying out to like hundreds of people at a time, let's say. One issue is that if you make a payout at low fee rate, someone can sweep one of their coins, 
one of the outputs could get swept by a, a, a recipient at a low fee rate. Maybe even they do consolidation, right? So it's this large transaction, low fee rate, and then suddenly you can't RBF this transaction, right? Or even child piece for parents. So the tools for um, being able to increase to bump fee or trans bump your transaction fee are reduced in these cases. I see. So let me just walk that through to make sure I've understood. So let's say an ex- a big exchange is doing a payout for you know fifty customers, and they're all getting there in one transaction. They're all getting you know let's say there's fifty outputs, but one of those customers, if he does a child pays for parent, but with a very low fee, you're saying that depending on the conditions at the time that exchange is now no longer able to add more people to that unconfirmed transaction? Or can, can you just walk me through that? So basically this, let's say they did a very large child pays for parent, like they're consolidating for some reason. Don't ask me why this has happened in real life. Then what you do is let's say you have a replace by fee scheme for your payouts. Now you have to pay for both your replacement as well as the child replacement. So if the child spent, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin on a very large low fee rate transaction. Now you have to pay that extra 0.1 Bitcoin to replace that because you're knocking it out of the mempool. You're essentially taking money out of miners' mouths if you don't replace that fee, right? In, in a sense. And also, you could say, well, why don't you just child pays for parent your own transaction? Like, uh, let's say the payment processor or custodian has a change output. Well, they, you could just double, you could spend that output at a higher fee rate. To bump it, right? This is called child pays for parent. But there can, there's also called package limit pinning, which is another flavor of this, which is due to the complexity of the mempool architecture, there's a limited amount of both number of child transactions in a mempool graph, you know, when you're tracing like uh, parents and children. And also, so there's, uh, there's both count, so how many descendants in the mempool, and also how large they are total. So for example, one large sweep could just lock you out of the size constraint. So you say, you're not even allowed to spend your own change trans- change output in the mempool. So as I understand, I mean, these are things that just already exist today. So these are already limitations. So exchanges and payment processes and users today are just dealing with this today, right? Yes. So I, I previously was the tech lead for the Liquid Network a few years ago. And this is a major issue because you can't you don't have a robust interface for doing replacement by fee or fee bumping. And so you're doing all these heuristics and guessing and saying, well, if we get stuck, that's uh, too bad, I guess, and hope it resolves itself by luck, pretty much. I've also talked to other people who've worked on custody solutions, and this is a pretty common problem. Right. And so I guess it's more of a problem if you are a large custodian or payment processor and you're dealing with these large transactions like it's not typically just like an individual user who's who's falling into these situations normally right yeah well it's more normal where you have a motivated adversary like in the lightning channel so that'd be more typical from a end user perspective is you're entering to a smart peer-to-peer smart contract and you need to resolve a transaction fast you need to get something confirmed in a jiffy and there's people who have financial incentive to stop you from doing it. I see. Yeah. So then I guess part of this is also coming into that conversation a, r- a little bit around mempool, full RBF and things like this. Because as I read some of the discussion, and you, cl- you clarify for me if I'm getting this wrong, but as I understood at one point or initially, it was understood that, oh, okay, having mempool, full RBF would 
help us sort of move into a situation where maybe some of these pinning attacks are less possible, but then later is sort of discovered that maybe it doesn't help us? Like, could you help us, you know, untangle what's happening there? Yeah, so you can think of not having full, mem- like the mempool for full RBF. If you don't have that, that opens up a new pinning vector, which is is basically um, in a coin join like situation with a peer, they can double spend their own input during like contract creation time and then uh, mark this double spend as not replaceable. So they get it into the mempool first and then you can't replace it no matter how much fees you put on there. So that's kind of the idea is that even if you put a lot of fee, you won't be able to replace it uh, efficiently. Um, so yes, the alternative is, well, even if we have full RBF, a motivated person can make it financially difficult to replace it, right? And they can kind of do this. So I think in the coin join scenario, it's for every input the attacker controls, they can increase the economic damage, so to speak, by that number of inputs, right? So it's multiplicative. So while it doesn't fix pinning per se, it does remove one pinning vector. Um, So it goes from like, goes from the you can't replace to well in the worst case you can replace but it'll be very expensive to do so i see so is it's fair to say then that mempool full rbf or just being in a full rbf world would help against some pinning vectors but not all of them is that Correct. fair to say yep exactly yes. okay so it's possible to have pinning outside of the context of this even even in a full rbf world yes okay yeah, so one, one ex- mental exercise you can do is you can say, okay, look at the, the RBF rules. It's BIP 125. You just read, you read that BIP, look at all the rules that are there and say, how can this pin a transaction? Because pretty much all of these are constraints on when you can replace something, right? It has to be signaling to replace. Um, you have to replace the total fee. Uh, one example is you can't, you can't replace it with something that has a new unconfirmed input, which is kind of like esoteric, but there's all these like constraints you, as a wallet designer you have to think about and take care not to violate to to properly RBF transaction. Right, and I think there are different arguments back and forth here because, as I understand, some of the let's say people who were anti the full RBF they were trying to say, well, let us manage our risk, and then the people on the other side are saying, no, nah, actually, full RBF is more incentive compatible for the long term. Uh, and this idea of first scene should never have been like a promise that should be sustained forever. I'm curious, how are you seeing that debate, uh, even though, you know, maybe it's a month or two, maybe three or four months old, but I'm curious how you're seeing that. Yeah, so my take was I did a lot of discussion with different developers, and there's different opinions, uh, smart opinions on both sides, to be honest. But I do fall on the side of you at least should offer the option of full RBF, mempool full RBF. Because the economic arguments are pretty solid, and to not have that feature is kind of paternalism, and it just encourages people to run alternative implementations, which maybe it's what you want, but I don't think that's kind of the desire, right? So there's prior to the release of, I think, Bitcoin Core 24.0, I think, that was when the debate was happening about like removing an option or not. And I was, I was vehemently against removing an option, even if I don't think it's the most burning question at the time. Right, I see. And as I understand, one of the, let's say, anti-full RBF arguments at that point, 
from people like Sergey over a bit refill would be something like, but remember, not every user is running a node and there's lots of users who are just using a wallet and they are not getting a, a choice per se in the running of a node. But I guess at some point, the answer would just be that, well, ultimately, if you want to have a say, you have to run a node. Is that your answer or how would you answer that? So with this kind of policy, you need something like 10% of the network to run with the, with the option flipped on to really make a difference. And you need some, some percent of miners, right? Maybe 1%, maybe higher. So there's this kind of thing where it's your actions alone aren't too important, but if there's a large minority of users that decide it's important and turn it on, then it may actually be in effect. So I think there's a bit of irony here in that I think some of the backlash was like, hey, you're trying to take an option from me. I'm definitely going to run it now. And that, I think it's kind of the Streisand effect, right? Like you're, you're drawing a lot of attention to it, and then that causes people to have a backlash. Now, I, I don't know what the number is today. I just think the future is going to be something like lightning payments. I mean, I haven't done on-chain for a few months now, you know, after I set up some channels. So, like, I think, I think that is the future, and everyone agrees that's the future and that's partly why I'm working on Lightning to make sure it is the future. Right, yeah. And as I understand, there are different arguments there. I'm probably, I think it seems to me, as I understand it, it seems to me like we're eventually going to be in a full RBF world, whether it's by Bitcoin Core or just the network acting that way. It seems to me like that's the, the world we're going into. Uh, and so hopefully more and more people are able to use Lightning and ideally in the self-sovereign way which I think also gets into the NAPREVOUT conversation as well. Um, but I'm curious if you see it like that. Do you believe that eventually, even if Bitcoin Core does not, let's say, uh, have it on as default, that eventually we would end up in some kind of similar scenario? Or at least you see, you, you, you see that as likely? Yeah, I think that's likely, especially when you consider a lot of the popular node software now. Um, it comes prepackaged with its own configuration, right? And you just need one kind of popular, for example, like Umbrel or something, you know, those popular distributions where they would flip on that switch themselves. So it's not even really up to core per se, right? It's up to basically what people are running. You know, the, the node runners themselves are in charge. So it's kind of an open question. And I think long term, I just think it makes sense. Yeah. And I, actually on that point, I think, it was interesting seeing some of the arguments there back and forth because some of the arguments were, look, yes, there's a lot of people who are signaling RBF manually in the, you know, in the current regime, but not a lot of people use the RBF. That was one of the arguments, right? It was saying, and I guess the argument could also come back. Well, maybe a lot of them don't know how to. Maybe they don't have a wallet that enable that is enabled for RBF. You know, there's all kinds of different um, back and forth there. But it seems to me like the longer term is using Lightning, of course. And, of course, many of the people on both sides of that debate are pro-Lightning. But I just thought it was an interesting one to understand. And so, I guess, bringing it back to the pinning aspect of it, do you see, I guess, as, as we were saying, even in a full RBF world, that takes away, I guess, some of the pinning vectors or one of the pinning vectors. That's right. And then what are the other pinning vectors that remain and should we be worried about those? Yeah, so I think I briefly mentioned them, but I, I call them kind of, there's like, there's more than this, but I would call the major two are packet, be called rule three pinning. This is BIP125 rule three, which says you must replace all the total Bitcoin fee, right? The total fee of everything you're going to knock out of the mempool with your replacement. I see. So if the the descendant is huge and low fee rate, it doesn't really matter because you're paying the total fee. So 
it can make an out. So if your if your transaction size was going to be a thousand bytes, one kilobyte, they could put in a child transaction that's a hundred thousand kilobytes. And so essentially, they're kind of inflating the size of your transaction by almost a hundred times, right? If you can think of it that way, uh, they're making this whole package a hundred times larger, and then reducing the fee rate down to something that won't get confirmed. I see. So that would allow them to indefinitely pin something to the bottom of the mempool per se and stop it from getting confirmed through. And in a lightning context, that means somebody could lose money, right? Exactly. In a lightning con- it's more interesting in things where there's timeouts involved, right? The time value one was if someone pins you and it just inconveniences you, that's annoying, but no one's losing their job over it, like at the custodian level, right? But at the lightning level, it's real. It's a money loss situation, so it's more uh, important. Then the second, the second largest kind of pinning vector is package limit pinning, which I mentioned, which is basically in the mempool by default, a packet, a transaction can have up to 24 descendants. So 25, including itself. Um, also in a mempool package, it can only be up to 101 kilo virtual bytes. So with a segment transaction, that's up to almost 400 kilobytes, right? As we saw with, uh, the ordinal stuff. Um, so a child could just be like too large. And then, so if you're trying to spend your change output to bump the fee, that stops it from happening. So that's kind of the other direction right there. If you want a child pays for parent, the package limit pinning stops it. If you want to replace by fee by double spending it, then the BIP-125 rule three makes it economically uh, expensive, maybe, maybe uneconomical to do it. I see. And so... Is any of this impacted then, I know Gloria's working on this idea and maybe others, maybe yourself, on this idea of mempool uh, package relay. So is, what's, is there an interaction there? Like, is that stopping any of this stuff? There is. A, there's a light interaction. So today with Lightning contracts, the, what's called commitment transaction, which is the thing you're, you're signing and replacing cons- constantly, this has to have a pre-agreed fee rate, which you expect it to get into the mempool at all, right? Because let's say you do one Satoshi per virtual byte for this commitment transaction, then the min rate goes to two, right? We saw this just last month. So in this situation, you would not be able to get the commitment transaction in the mempool at all, right? That's a problem. So package really is this notion that, well, if we could tell nodes about the parent and a child, just as a simple example, so the commitment transaction and then a spend of what's called an anchor output to bump the fee rate. If you could tell a node about both of those at the same time, they could they could evaluate it together and say, okay, I think this can make it into the mempool because I think a miner would want this as, as a package. And so with package re- so if you just do basic package relay, then what we can do is for the commitment transactions, we can drop those to zero fee. We say, you know what? Ahead of time, we don't know what the fee rate's going to be for the mempool. So let's try not, let's not even try to guess. So what you do is you have the parent transaction be zero fee, and then you have the child pay for the entire package out of its own pocket, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm getting you. So it's kind of like mempool package relay helps miners and the network see, oh, there's actually a little bit more fee associated for this, so I'm going to take this one, whereas previously it might not have had enough fee for me to be interested. Is that kind of how... Correct. Yes, that's right. Exactly, because right now you have to individually send transactions and evaluate the fee rate individually, right? So that's that's the that's the problem here. So with package relay, we can simplify these. We can simplify the Lightning network a bit, but you still have these pinning scenarios. So I can jump into that now. 
Yeah. So you still have the rule three pinning, the kind of economic pinning of the total transaction fee issue, and you still have the package limit pinning. But this is where uh, Gloria and others have been working on the version three proposal. If you want to jump into that. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. Okay. So it's very difficult. You know, I mentioned all these big numbers, you know, 101 kilo virtual bytes. I mentioned 25 descendants. And this descendant graph is like hard to reason about because every transaction can have multiple parents, multiple children. And so this like these algorithms that are there to help the miner get the most fees and the algorithms to make the mempool like down to size when it gets too big. These are kind of different algorithms and they're hard to reason about. They're kind of in conflict with each other in some ways and they're hard to reason about. So the version three idea is what if a transaction can opt into a new kind of regime where it's simple, right? Simple to reason about. So the V3 proposal is what if you, you pick transaction version three and that means there can only be one parent and one child transaction. So a package size or a package count of two transactions and they have a strict relationship. And from there it becomes much easier to reason about, for example, package limit pinning and all these other things. In addition, the child is restricted to one kilo virtual byte. I see. So that would stop the rule three pinning. Yes. That's the, so that's for the rule three pinning. And so I call this also, um, I call this like an RBF carve out because it lets you R in the cases where you want to RBF or can RBF, then it becomes do like much more doable. So let's, let's go back to the lightning case. Let's say we've adapted these commitment transactions to use this. Then the commitment transaction can be any size like it is today. And you're pre, you're pre agreeing with your counterparty. You're saying this is a new channel state. This is a new channel state. But then when it comes time to go on chain, that hits the chain at zero fee, right? This, this commitment transaction zero fee. And then the child, one of the anchors, the, there's two anchors, one for each person. Mm-hmm. One of these anchors will get spent and it'll be small. Therefore, you're basically ensuring that the rule three pinning is up to one kilobyte, right? I see. So we can think of it like it kind of contains the rules or contains it into certain known pathways. And then that makes it easier for us to do lightning and to do maybe other protocols as well. Maybe not just lightning, right? Yeah, exactly. And so actually, I think the proposal would be that um, each version of the commitment transaction, since I have a copy, you have, like, let's say we have a channel, I have a copy, you have a copy. These are separate pre-signed copies. We each have only one anchor on each transaction. We have our own anchor on our own, right? The one we'll broadcast, we have an anchor for ourselves. And so then we can package relay RBF each other. So I spend from mine and I put both of those in the mempool. Then you can respond with a newer version, right? Yeah. You can package RBF. And you don't even have to look at the mempool for this. You just, you're picking a fee schedule. You know, I think this is a good fee and I need to go to chain. And you can blindly double spend this. And that's the important part is that these wallets don't even have to like see the mempool. They're just submitting packages and, you know, outbidding the other person. That's the important part. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so yeah, and this is kind of all leading towards this idea of well, what, what are we going to do with Lightning? Because some of this stuff, as you're saying, it's already a risk. Like it could already happen. It's just that some of these ideas are being designed to yes. stop this in the future. So I guess it's kind of like trying to preemptively stop this stuff happening in the future where we're in this scenario where people not safe in Lightning because they can't get their penalty transactions or their justice transactions confirmed because of these fee pinning or, the, sorry, transaction pinning uh, vectors. 
Yeah, and, and we've also had a long period of fairly empty mempools, and this issue doesn't show up unless the mempool is consistently backlogged or maybe suddenly gets a big backlog of high P rates, yeah. right? Yeah, and so for, for a lot of people, they've just kind of become accustomed to it or in some cases they've shifted to altcoin chains. And maybe we've seen this historically with you know Omni, Tether came off Bitcoin, and then a lot of the stable coins went to shit coins, right? They're on Ethereum, Tether, and Tron Tether, and so people just, you know, and exchanges did batching and most people are using SegWit nowadays. So it's kind of, it's taken a lot of what was previously the fee pressure or the block space pressure, right? Off the chain, but it could come back. Like if we saw a big uptick in users, then all of a sudden we'd be back in that same environment, right? Yeah, or or lots of people started inscribing ordinals, <laughs> right. right? You need to be able to react to this because a counterparty could just be sitting there waiting and say, aha, now the mempool's backlogged, and then do this attack. So it does actually matter. It's like a future security argument, even if the mempool is mostly empty in general. Yeah, right, because they could be opportunistic about it right now. Yeah, Yeah. so, so let me spin the thread a little bit more. So we have the version 3 proposal, which is being worked on, and package relay, which is being worked on. So v3, I called it kind of an RBF carve-out. So it doesn't it still doesn't quite solve the the situation where you have the package limit pinning at least in general. So the package limit pinning issue is still there, right? If you want to child please your parent by spending your own let's say change output, a counterparty that has a spendable output in the same transaction can basically max that out, right? And disallow you from spending doing a child please your parent. And so this is where I've been working on a proposal that kind of extends v3 which is called ephemeral anchors, which is this idea that um, you can attach an output that doesn't require any signatures or anything. So in this case, it could be an opt-true output. Basically, a, a bare opt-true output that is zero value or can be zero value that is essentially a hook. like It's like a lock on the transaction where to get this transaction in the mempool, you have to spend that output. So it's essentially like you can think of it like a, a lock on the tra- on, on this transaction where, yeah, so if it has other outputs, let's say, let's say you have uh, two outputs and this anchor, then a counterparty can only spend the other outputs if they also spend this special output. Does that make sense? Basically, yeah. because you have to spend it, it will be spent. And there's only one child, if, if you remember this that uh, in this V3 regime, there's only one child. So they must be spent together. And so then that makes it kind of like a lock on the on the parent transaction says, well, you have to spend this so anyone can double spend these these um, child payments, essentially these child spends. And so this this kind of unlocks the, the package limit pinning scenario where in the commitment transaction, in the original commitment transaction, it has two anchors. You can't get pinned because this... The, the outputs have to be spent together, essentially, along with this ephemeral anchor. Oh, interesting. So it's a little hard to... Uh, yeah, gri- I guess it's hard to conceptualize, but I, th- I think I'm sort of following you. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you a specific example right now. So if we want to do, like, um, splicing, right, or make a channel, all of the smart contract scripts have this thing that is a, a one-block relative time lock, a one-block check sequence verify, all of these outputs have them except for the anchors. And this is because we're trying to stop package limit pinning. Ironically, this can be, um, this sometimes can be incompatible with Miniscript. And it also means you can't do smart things like 
oh, I want to splice into a new, a new channel funding output, but also not pin the other person, right? Back to the show in a moment. When it comes to securing your Bitcoin for the long term, you know I'm a big fan of multi-signature and Unchained Capital can help you out here. They have multi-signature that is secure, transparent, easy to use and sovereign. With their multi-signature, you generally hold two keys in different locations, of course, and they hold the third key. So they can help you in the case of recovery. They can also help you out in the case of inheritance. So concierge onboarding is a program they offer. You can pay up front. They can ship you some hardware. They'll do a call with you and teach you how to set this up, even if you've never held your own Bitcoin private keys before. They also have some inheritance step-by-step checklists, letters for the executor or trustee, and a range of other support and education. You can find all of this over at unchained.com slash concierge. Use code Levera for a discount. And when it comes to hardware to secure your Bitcoin, coinkite.com offers a fantastic range of products here. Most notably is the cold card Mark IV, the latest edition. It has two secure elements. It has NFC support, but you can, of course, disable that and just use micro SD or USB if you wish. And it has more RAM and CPU for faster signing of transactions. It's also a very reliable performer. I found it really reliable in, and I really like that you can set up this device without even plugging it into a computer. You can just plug it to the wall or you can even battery power it and use it in that way. And then and you can set it up easily with wallets such as Spectre Desktop, Sparrow, or Electrum. And CoinKite also offer a range of other products, notably the Block Clock, Seed Plate, or the Tap Signer. A range of other products you can check out there. Go to CoinKite.com, use code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. And finally, for those of you looking forward to a Bitcoin event, this is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event in Europe. It's BTC Prague. It's happening in Prague, Czech Republic, June 8th to 10th. This is going to be a fantastic event. I'm excited to go. I will be one of the MCs for the event. Michael Saylor will be there. There'll be an awesome range of speakers. There'll be so many Bitcoiners. So if anyone is in Europe or near Europe, definitely check your calendar, check your diary, mark, mark this out, get some flights, look at hotels, do those things now because you want to get in for this one. There are a range of tickets available, whether it's the standard ticket, the industry ticket, or the whale ticket, and you can get increased access to the whale zones with a stylish environment for networking and meetings. There will also be white glove service and premium food and drinks for those of you who want to get the whale ticket, as well as an exclusive party event. So go to btcprog.com, use code Levera for a discount on your tickets. And now back to the show with Greg. Okay, yeah. So it's so I guess it, it comes down to protecting against package limit pinning may also mm-hmm. stop some of the extensibility of other features like splicing and so on. Exactly. So you're adding on these extra ad hoc measures to stop pinning, but that breaks composability with other smart contracts and and whatnot. So you'd love to splice directly to your, like your Coinbase account or whatever, right? But to the counterparty, you might have to prove to your counterparty that hey, this this script has you know I can't I can't pin you in the package sense right package limit sense right. But how do you prove that right? Maybe it's not your you know it's it's Coinbase. It's not even your address right. Maybe they have committed to you know a taproot script of whatever. Like we don't know what that is. So basically, it breaks composability when you have to introspect all of the outputs and look at them and say oh does it have a time lock on it. That breaks a lot of things, I think. So that's that's another idea. I see. So that's kind of just an open question at this point. And I guess, does that conflict then with splicing in general? Does that mean we won't get splicing if we... If no. We... So, so I think splicing is a bit of a red herring. I was just using a motivating example in that as long as the commitment transaction can go to chain, you're okay. And as long as, as, long as you aren't 
rule three pinned, you can RB, package RBF it. So let's say you do a splice and your counterparty pins it, right? They make a bunch of stuff off it. Well, in the end, you're supposed to be collaborating with this person and you have a commitment transaction that can go to chain at any time, so you're okay. So there's like, you, you really have to sit there and think about all the situations that can arise based off of the things you have signed. So it, it complicates things more. But the ephemeral anchors would mean that in a kind of composable way, you can say, I don't care what the other outputs are saying. I don't care about the uh, script like format of any of these other outputs are as long as there's one of these anchors on the transaction. I know I can double spend it, essentially. So, so I can tie this into kind of, I've been working on an L2 specification for Lightning. And based on this, I can remove a lot of things that are complicated. So I don't have to add any time locks to anything, any of the script outputs, except for, of course, the, uh, the contract timeout itself, like waiting like the con- contesting period, right? So we have to, I have to wait a day to claim my funds because I might be lying, right? They can come back online and, and put the latest state on the chain. So aside from that, right, I don't right. have to add any time locks. Um, any of the outputs and any of the transactions can be spent immediately to include fees, right? So when you're settling the so when you're settling the uh, the state, you have like your balance output that's coming out of it, right? You can immediately spend that as a child pays for parent. Today you can't do that, right? So when you have a commitment transaction on chain, the only thing you can spend is the anchor, which means you have to bring your own fees always. So it simplifies like the the wallet complexity and how much funds you have to have sitting around to settle these smart contracts. I see. Yeah. Okay. So could you outline a little bit then? So just for people who aren't familiar, like what is any probability like in kind of simple ish terms, if you could explain that and then just, I guess, summarize the benefit for L2. Okay. So any prev out is an evolution on a proposal that's been around for a while called no input. And basically it says normally when we sign a transaction, we're, Putting, you know, we're making a hash like a, we're called a commitment, or like we're including all the important transaction pieces that we say the signature attaches to. Any prevout basically says, well, sign the same stuff, but don't sign which output specifically this is coming from. So that's what any prevout previous output. So any previous output works for the signature. So what the checks will do is say, uh, is the lock time correct? Are the outputs correct? Some other details, but it won't look at the previous output identifier. So like the TXID and the output number, it won't look at that. So what you can do is you can sign a series of transactions. Then these can be essentially re rebound to any previous output that makes it onto the chain. So for L2, this means... There's a funding output, so where you both put funds in at the same time to start your channel. And then once someone goes offline, you can basically put the last version of the signature you've had on chain and rebind it to that output, right? If an attacker, if a counterparty puts an old version of of the channel on chain, then you can rebind your latest version to the output they just created. So essentially you're building this chain of state outputs and any of the newer state 
transitions can attach to older ones, any older one, essentially. So as I understand, and, and I believe this is the way Christian Decker explained it to me, is that it's like a ratcheting effect that, mm-hmm. let's say, I publish an old state, you can, you're allowed to publish any newer state, and yep. yours will be re- regarded as the correct, you know, that's the one that would get confirmed into the chain. Yeah, so like the 100th channel update can spend the 99th one, the 98th, and, and so on and so forth, all the way down yeah. to the original one. And so that means your overall node state is constant because you have to hold one or two versions of this. In my spec, you have to hold two versions of it. So you'd have to hold the 100th and the 99th in memory or on disk or something. And also for watchtowers, it's the same. A watchtower only have to hold one, one version of the transaction. Yeah. So just to summarize then, the idea with any prevout is there are these sig hash flags and they relate to what the signature is committing to. And so in the any prevout context, so I guess typically we would just be in a, let's say if you're just in a normal Bitcoin on-chain wallet, it's just sig hash all, right? Or it would just, that's like the typical... Usually, yeah. Yeah. And then in the any prevout context, you'd be having a special sig hash flag, which lets you re... And this is the rebinding concept, right? So it's saying, let me rebind this input, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. So you might do sig hash all any prev out, which means I'm committing to all the outputs, but I don't want to commit to the previous outputs, right? And you can do sig hash single, which is I'm committing to one output, but not the input, right? So there's these combinations that you put together depending on what you want. So I use use any prev out. The the version that I use is called any prev out any script, which also means it doesn't commit to the script that you're executing. So the tap leaf script. And it also doesn't commit to the amount. I see. And so is that going to vary also across script type or are we fully in a taproot world here? BIP118 is only defined under taproot. So it uses the unknown public key extension hook, which means if there's a public key, when you do a check sig operation in, in TapScript, if it has a public key, if the argument, the public key argument is not 32 bytes today, it would just say success. Say, okay, the signature passed. BIP-119 redefines two, two different lengths. The length of one, if it's one byte long and it's the number one, then it considers it the internal public key, so the taproot internal public key, which we, you can define that. Or if it's 33 bytes and with a leading one, then the last 32 bytes are considered a normal public key, a uh, normal taproot, like a uh, public key for CheckSig. But it, it turns on this new sig hash mode so if it has a leading one that means you're allowed to do any prev out for that key you don't have to but you can right yeah and so that's the i guess that's the other part where it's opt-in right like people don't have to use any prev out if they don't want to right like that's i guess that's an important concept for people to understand that's right and it won't be activated for key spend when you're when you're doing a top level spend so you know 99.9 percent of the time you wouldn't be using it it's used for these very special smart contract cases that ideally would never make it to chain anyways. Right, yeah, yeah. And so then summarizing some of the things, as I understand that an L2 context or just moving to L2, E-L-2-O-O, it would make backups a lot easier. It would make watchtowers a lot easier. And it would also enable this concept of multi-party channels, right? Or in future. Yeah, so the spec I have written now is for two-party, but it was written, at least the transaction structure is written with an eye for multi-party. So given version 3, ephemeral anchors, and BIP118 and package relay, these like concepts together, 
you can fairly, you know, fairly trivially expand this to multi-party. There's trade-offs, of course, and the peer-to-peer messages would have to change a fairly significant bit. But I think the the parts are there, and it can at least be considered. I mean, it might be a good intern project or something to work on that. Um, but I'm I'm focused on the two-party case for now. Uh, just seeing, you know, implementing a spec and actually implementing it in Core Lightning has been my work for the last, you know, last almost a year now, and I'm just pushing that ball forward. Great. And so, could you spell out the difference for us in the models of LN penalty and? the L2 way where, as I understand, we might be taking away the penalty and it's more just updating to the correct state as opposed to having some kind of a penalty. Right. So Lightning Network today, some of those developers call it LN penalty, which means like Lightning Network penalty-based channel. And this is the idea where um, you have a punishment where if you put the wrong version on chain, intentionally or not, all the balance can be taken by the counterparty. This requires asymmetric state, meaning each of us need a different version of a transaction, or at least different witness data, usually different state data, and you have to track this in perpetuity. There's another version of it called DARIC, D-A-R-I-C, which is an any prevout-based penalty channel construction for two parties. So it would get you a lot of the efficiency improvements that we've been talking about, these O of one state efficiency improvements. And, but it would re- retain the 100% penalty. The one I'm working on is dubbed LN symmetry because it's a symmetric state, right? So you have this symmetric channel state, symmetric transactions, and it has no penalty because since it's symmetric, there's no way of ascribing blame, at least mechanically, right? Um, if, a, if a transaction shows up on chain, either of the counterparties could have done that. There's also in-between uh, versions as well. So Anthony Towns had it has a proposal adding in you know, optional penalties. So optimizing for the two-party case, and you can add in penalties if you want. And these could be partial penalties. So you could do a percent of the channel balance, a constant size. Uh, you could penalize just the HLCs outstanding, things like that. So it's like a, a parameter you could set. But it's a little more difficult to add in watchtowers. You can do it, but it re-adds some of the complexity you're trying to avoid. You know, because you don't want a watchtower to basically plain old state that penalizes you that's kind of the key i see yeah um so yeah so to me it sounds i mean i understand there may be some people who, who want the penalty aspect because they believe that helps stop bad actors let's say um but maybe on the other hand if we have it in a way that's symmetry like the ln symmetry model it's arguably more scalable and a little bit easier f- to transition into let's say the multi-party channel future hypothetically right yeah so without penalties the multi-party scenario is pretty simple to think about you do all people you know the most naive construction is all the parties have to be online to sign new versions of the transaction which may or may not make sense depending on what your channel partners are like but it does mean that watchtowers become a lot kind of safer and um, I think the the incentive here in a in a uh, pe- penaltyless world would be that you want to be online, be- and your counterparty will want you to be online because that's the cheapest thing to do. If watchtowers are plentiful and it's easy to get a uh, correct version of the transaction on chain, basically your counterparty will be incentivized to reach out to you and make sure you get back online, essentially, because it's the cheapest way. Uh, get you get your money back immediately. And it's cheaper in fees anyways. Yeah, awesome. And so as I understand, and this kind of gets to that idea of if you really want Bitcoin to scale non-custodially or self-custodially 
to as many people as possible, then having some way of scaling the number of people who are using one particular UTXO, this is like a big this would be a big win, right? Could you outline a little bit how you're viewing that? Like let's say over the longer term, would this you know, this could really improve self custody? Yeah, I think so. So you, it improves liquidity, right? So if, if you have a channel with with two people, right? You have two different channels with two different people, the liquidity has to be spread between those two channels. But if you do a th- three person, you know, channel, a clique between these, these two people and you, then all the liquidity is deployable to each direction, right? So it's a liquidity improvement. So for small numbers, I think a kind of basic multi-party setup makes sense. But if you're getting to larger numbers, you probably have to think about introducing new complexity to take care of the fact that someone will probably be offline at any given moment, right? So that's where things like uh, channel factories comes into play. And that that's more complexity and there's more time locks happening. So things can take longer to settle on chain. So I, I haven't really focused on that too much, but they're definitely possible. I see. Yeah. So I guess we could think of it like it's that there's a pathway there, though. Whereas if we let's say we never get any more soft forks in Bitcoin, that will restrict the number of people who can realistically self custody because you have to be able to at least open a lightning channel and have a UTXO. And there, I guess it's going to be difficult to scale that UTXO set to, you know, billions of people. It's just not at all feasible, right? Yeah. And I think that'll always be the case because you have to have a realistic threat of being able to leave the transact the uh smart contract right and i think that's always gonna be that's gonna be very difficult i think for large numbers of parties i think it's a fairly unsolved problem how to make this scale i think something like the roll-up model where you have a trusted coordinator trusted in the sense of they can make channel like up state updates unilaterally sort of as long as they're authorized by the individual participants and that that allows them to batch these state updates Right. And then, but you still need this fallback period, this fallback where you as an individual can go on chain. And so this kind of, you have to have a realistic threat of going on chain yourself at any given moment. Right. And so I think that's, there is a limiting factor, I think, to all these systems. Yeah, that's fair to say. Because I guess, again, some of this is, it's like there's so many moving parts, we don't know what happens, but it's quite possible that longer term fees rise a lot. And so perhaps, in an any prevout world, in an L2 world, people can share the cost of some of those on-chain transactions because let's say we're in a we're in a multi-party channel where let's say five of us are sharing that fee as opposed to one guy having to pay the full fee himself, right? Yeah, and ideally you wouldn't have to go on you do, you wouldn't have to go on chain as often because your liquidity wouldn't have to be spread out over so many channels, right? So if you can set up so I think the most obvious use case today would be these LSPs, Lightning Service Providers, would connect with each other, right? So today they are connecting with each other by, you know, in a two-party manner. But maybe, you know, they the biggest LSPs come together and they make a huge clique of liquidity, and that way they can reduce their liquidity requirements, which is a business cost, right? They're locking up liquidity for you as a customer, so they can reduce their overall costs while not redu- not reducing quality of service because. I'm just assuming these LSPs are staying online at high uptime, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, these would be professionally managed um, services, right? Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. And f- for end users in, in the far-flung future, you know, maybe you do it in small amounts as end user, or maybe we do these new constructions that allow 
subsets of people to be offline, but new states to be signed. It's just more complexity has to be considered. Yeah. And so in fairness, I mean, it's not a... It's not a totally free launch, right? There is going to be more interactivity required. Yeah, there's always trade-offs. So could you outline, I guess, what are some of the downsides of moving to the AnyProvout L2 world? Do you, do you see any? Well, for LN Symmetry specifically, there's one big downside is that the, the, the timeouts for HGLCs will be longer. So if you care about that a lot, that means it matters. It, it'll matter to you. Uh, there's debate about how much this matters for because this this makes essentially makes you a less less uh, juicy routing node. So if you want to be a routing node and do a lot of do a lot of routing, maybe people will, will go around you because you're locking up their you know you're locking up liquidity for longer and it takes them a long time to get their HTLCs uh, timed out. Essentially, I think that's one of the biggest downsides. I think otherwise, I think all the constructions of channels that use any prev out are almost strictly superior. Like, you can pick Daric or pick the Anthony Towns version or LN Symmetry. I think they all offer something unique, and um, Daric is sort of a drop-in replacement for LN Penalty today, in a sense. I think it's just simply better. Yeah. And so, in terms of the increased interactivity, I guess that's one other aspect, right? So, let's say we wanted to move into a multi-party channel world then you would now need your lightning node has to talk to, let's say, four other, let's say, in a five-person channel or, or whatever, right? You're, you're having to talk to them, and there's now a chance that one of them is offline at the time you're trying to sign some kind of channel state update, right? That, that would be the risk, right, or downside? Exactly. Today, you have a channel, and the chance of it being down is the chance of you being down. Uh, forget probability. Basically, it's the chance of you being down or the other person being down, right? And so you add a third person in the mix. Now it's you know, three different people that could be down, and only one of them has to be down for the channel to be inoperable, at least temporarily, right? And so basically, as you add large and larger numbers, this probability goes up. So it's a yeah. liveliness requirement, but then you have, it lowers your liquidity requirements. And I, I think that's the key there. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, it's just really fascinating to think about. Of course, this is like kind of way off in the future. Of course, the things that are just here now, if you could sort of talk through for us, just so we can understand, what what would be the process of testing some of these things out and proving it out before there, you know, people could build enough support for the idea of having any out as a software. Right. So I think with any software today, we probably should have tooling already going and proving it out because this is when you really run into design constraints of these softworks. So what I've been working on is the spec and implementation of LN Symmetry using any out. I've been using my own private forks of Bitcoin Core, you know, with the necessary softworks and mempool policies. But there is a um, Anthony Towns is administrating the uh, helping administrate the Signet public Signet, and also doing the Bitcoin Inquisition fork, which is essentially an, an idea that you can have softworks which are temporary on a Signet, and because coins aren't worth anything, it's okay if these softworks go away or, or time out essentially. And so on Signet, he has currently AnyPrevout activated, the current version of AnyPrevout, and also Check Template Verify, another software idea by Jeremy Rubin. So basically, you have these softworks already activated. So I, I could I could basically run what I have for Ellen Symmetry, except I have a couple of mempool requirements, as, as we've been talking about. And so I'm working on getting those kind of a minimal viable... Uh, version of it 
in so I can do um, kind of signet testing directly of what I have implemented for Core Lightning. And I think that's kind of the way forward in general is making sure that, you know, if we think any is good and it's good for primarily good for like channel updates, uh, state chains, things like that, I think really it should be proven out first because it could be that like we go through a whole activation battle and then it ends up not being the thing we actually want, right? And so that's like a big danger. And since the cost is so high, I think it should be proven out first. Yeah, okay. And so what does proving it out look like in practice? Does that mean a big, a vibrant test net for this or a vibrant signet for this? Uh, what, what, what would it take to really show that impact yeah i'm not sure what is sufficient but what is necessary for me would be for any private specifically it's you know does it actually make a allow a new channel construction which is significantly superior to the current current state of the art right needs significant benefits so what that means i mean to, to me it has i has meaning but um you know would lightning developers in the Lightning Network space be excited to implement such a thing? That's a big question to me, right? Because you could deploy a software and no one uses it. Well, that's that's not good either, right? And so drumming up a kind of end-user support or layer two support, wallet support for these ideas is probably step one, right? Or step two, if we're at step two now. Whatever step we're on. Because the idea sounds nice, but would people actually end up using it that's question number two yeah and i think that was maybe one criticism that people had uh, or have sometimes of soft fork ideas is they say well is there a commercial impact right are there going to be people who are going to are there businesses who want to build this right and i think for example with james o'burn's op vault it sounds like some of the commercial people focused on building wallets and products are excited about op vault because it maybe it would help with securing our coins and so you know i think i think opvault makes sense um but i you know i i would love to see this idea of any out and like multi-party channels because i guess to me like it would be cool to see more people be able to self-custody than what can today right because like it's kind of like today there are just limits and we can't go past them without new technology or otherwise people end up custodial and so you know we like shouldn't we try to stave that off as much as possible yeah and i think there's iteration on what that kind of what's the best replacement of current channels we could do today, uh, given current knowledge, and then iterating towards that future. So I mean that that's what we've been doing for the past year. Or so like there's a lot of been, a lot has been learned in the past year, and I, I think we're going to keep continue that. Fantastic. Well, any, if anyone wants to get involved, they want to help out, or they want to you know learn more, what's the best place for them to? Go or what's what are you looking for in terms of um, involvement or help here? Right, so there's an IRC channel, uh, pound pound L2. That's one place if you hang out on IRC. Signet involvement, the Bitcoin Inquisition involvement. So from a developer perspective, getting reviews on that. L2, the L2 implementation itself isn't prime time. It's it's proving out the the protocol works and you know channels can be made, payments can be made, payments can be routed, but it's not like it's not something I would put money in, right? So it's more at the stage of kind of gathering knowledge about, you know, maybe getting these ideas further out there, the benefits of that for node operators and getting feedback from both like the Lightning Network community, um, DLC community, state chains community, and seeing if the work that has been done already can be directly ported to these other, you know, development communities. So I would love to, I would love to see, for example, I'd love to see, you know, state chains 
using any prevout on Signet, right? The uh, Mercury wallet, they have a state chains based off of pre-signed transaction, like with time locks, things like that. It would be great to see if they could adapt their, their protocol to using any prevout and then deploying it, Bitcoin Signet. And it seems to me from most Lightning people I talk to, they are in favor of any prevout. I'm curious, what kind of feedback have you had from the Lightning community, Lightning devs, Lightning users? I think of a pretty uh, pretty solid um, excitement. Uh, there's a lot of quite, people still have different opinions on like penalties and whatnot, but I think that's kind of a now that we know that any prevout can construct kind of a fairly wide array of parameters in architectures. I think I think that's you know I think we've crossed that threshold at least. So next would be getting buy in the Ellendov community, getting buy-in on kind of a specific architecture to move towards. As like a, as maybe a proof of concept of you know interoperability, right? So it'd be great if Core Lightning and Eclair or you know some LDK based one would be able to do L2 payments on Signet. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So it comes back to again that proving it out aspect. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. So yeah. I guess is there any? I guess outside of the any prev out and L2 and LN symmetry stuff, is there anything else that you would like to see in Bitcoin or Lightning? Um, development or just in general i'm curious is there are there any other things that you're interested in uh yeah i mean so the, all the tooling is pretty interesting to me so i i'm waiting you know i've been using miniscript and and playing around with it and i i'm waiting to see um taproot support for miniscript um i'm i'm helping get uh you know the all this taproot support tapscript support uh, miniscript support all this stuff just takes time to build because these are like basically standards we're building and we're building on top of these standards, which makes life easier going forward. I mean, I'm excited about another, another big project I'm excited about is Fediment and Fedi. I think that's a very interesting way forward for, you know, plug use cases and smaller amounts, right? With privacy. So I'd say that's kind of the shorter term thing I'm most excited about is tooling and kind of this federated Tommy Mint stuff. Fantastic. Well, I think that's probably a good spot to finish up there, Greg. Any uh, any closing thoughts for people? If you're interested in any of the other topics, just reach out to me. I'm on Twitter sometimes, the Instagibs, or on IRC as Instagibs. So love to talk to anyone about this stuff. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me and uh, definitely a very informative chat for me. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I hope you found the episode educational. I certainly did. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 463. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.